Well, good morning, everybody. Good morning. <clears throat> this morning, I'm going to hopefully complete what I was hoping to complete last week in Romans 13, 8 through 10. But we spent more time on ultimate government for some reason. I don't know. I just didn't plan well enough, I guess. But anyway, why don't we uh, get into the study today, and we'll have Steve open for us in a word of prayer. Father, we do thank you for this beautiful day that you've given us. Uh, You meet all our needs. Thank you for the time that we can spend together, a little bit of fellowship, uh, a lot of scripture, some prayer, uh, and fellowship. So we do thank you for this opportunity. We are Uh, We love you. We thank you for all you've done for us, unmerited favor, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, we talked about love when we were in chapter 12, and some people wonder why does Paul go back to to reemphasize it or seems to be covering the same material. Nothing new. In fact, Today, we're not going to talk about too many things that are unfamiliar with probably all of you, but as is the case in the Christian life, it's good to always be reminded of things that are most important. And the main reason that uh, Paul reiterates on love is not just to remind us, but also because we have a different context. So we'll talk about that and uh, get into Romans 13, 8 to start with. And just as we usually do, I remind you that we're talking about a letter written to Christians. That's very important. You can misinterpret some of the passages if you think it's written to an unbelieving audience. So I think it's a believing audience in the city of Rome. This is the center of Roman activity in the first century. One of the best preserved or recovered archaeological sites in the ancient world. Most of that dates to even before the first century, some of those temples there. The context, we're applying what Paul has taught. First 11 chapters relating to God's righteousness. I see that as the the underlying and major theme of the entire book, the righteousness of God. Man is without it. God provides it. And uh, the nation of Israel has actually, I don't want to say ignored it, but rejected it essentially in their Messiah. So Paul needs to vindicate what he's doing in history in chapters 9 through 11. And then chapter 12, he begins to show us what does it look like? What does this righteousness look like in everyday living? That's application. And he deals with different areas, the first and fundamental and most important area. What does it look like in relationship to God? It's basically getting ones outside of themselves and laying themselves on an altar using Old Testament imagery. In other words, making oneself available to whatever God would have, your will, not my will. Living sacrifice, not a dead one, but a living one. And uh, that's fundamental. And if we have that one right, then all of the other ones will fall into place. And he will lead us in relationship to our relationship to the church. So that's verses 3 through 21. And we spent a considerable time talking about spiritual gifts. That's the first part. And then he talked about love, loving those that are brothers in Christ. And like I've already introduced, we have another section in uh, chapter 13 on love but it relates to society. So I think he's broadening the audience in terms of who we are to minister amongst and minister to. So the love, that's why I titled it Love for Citizens rather than just simply brothers and sisters. So that's the main context, society. And we looked at government, spent a considerable time. In fact, I didn't intend to spend as much last time, but we spent almost the whole time looking at what government is ultimately going to look like. Man fails when it comes to government, and that failure comes in varying degrees. And 
it sets the groundwork for God intervening and showing what uh, good government looks like. Government with a sinless king. Government that begins with all regenerated citizens. A government that's focused on God himself. So we spent most of our time looking at that. And we also, in the book of Romans, there's a final portion here, chapters 14 to the middle of chapter 15, dealing with Christian liberty. And I might even change that title when we get there, but that's kind of the emphasis that I'm thinking of for now. In outline form, application to God, application to church, chapter 12, application to society, chapter 13, submission to authority. We've looked at that. And now we're going to focus on the summation of love. And I get that from verse 9. We'll talk about it. So verses 8 through 10. Any lingering questions from last time? Or any comments before we get into the verse? Beginning with verse 8. Everybody happy? That was great. I, um, I didn't pick that up last time so much. I'm focused on God himself. Maybe I was sleeping or, or, or something. <laughs> we were in that part a few months ago, actually. So it wasn't just last week. So, chapter 13, beginning in verse 8. Starts off with, Oh, nothing to anyone. Now, the latter part of last week, we took a look at that. And the main focus of what we did last week, I tried to give a different perspective on the verse than what some emphasize. And I'm not saying a lot, but it can be confusing. So we talked a little bit about the issue of debt. I'm not going to go over that, but just a quick review. This verse does not prohibit, if you will, prohibit going into debt. I think the Bible in general, in terms of finances and money, encourages wisdom, and too much debt, obviously, is not a good thing, but it doesn't absolutely prohibit it. And we looked at a few passages that uh, indicate that it's permitted in the Old Testament, and by way of implication from those passages, it would be permitted today. And we see similar, in fact, similar words of the Lord Jesus Christ in terms of lending. In fact, these passages deal with lending. So if it's permissible to lend then it doesn't make sense that those that are the borrower are prohibited. You have to have a two-way street there. So similar with Jesus, it seems permissible to lend, in fact, encouraged. So it uh, probably is not absolutely prohibited. But I think with not only wisdom and other biblical principles, there's some debt that's illegitimate. Debt that cannot be paid back, debt that you go into for things that you don't need, things like luxuries or just simply for your comfort. Those areas, probably from other passages, we need to use some uh, wisdom and avoid those. And I don't know if I mentioned it, but in general, it is best to operate on a debt-free basis. I don't want to say cash basis because... It's hard to even do that today. And certainly, I've always used credit cards, but I've always paid them off. And I don't even remember, other than maybe forgetting to pay for some reason, uh, I don't remember paying any interest. In fact, I do remember now. And I called the credit card company, and they gave me a a waiver on that. So I didn't even pay then. So, But anyway, the whole idea, I think it's better to always operate on a, a basis where you can you have all the resources available to be able to pay off whatever you are charging on a credit card. So it's hard not to use a credit card. And for me, it's real handy as far as a record to keep a record and to have that record available to be used for other purposes. So that seems to be what uh, the attitude I think that would be encouraged biblically. So I don't want to get into that anymore. So let's talk about the context. I think what Paul is doing here, and I tried to stress, he's transitioning from a debt that we owe to the government. In fact, he uses 
the word related to debt. We're going to look a little bit more at that word because that's the focus of the first part and the emphasis that he has there. So it's somewhat of a transition from the debt of taxes that we saw in the earlier passage. And for those of you that know a little Greek, the Greek word ophelo has the idea to owe something. And the reason I want to bring this out is to reinforce what we talked about last time. Certainly, there are some passages that focus on the financial aspect. And one of them, for example, in fact, some of you may look these up just to get a handle on them. Uh, Somebody look up Matthew 18 and somebody look up 1 John chapter 4 and somebody else look up chapter 13 of John's gospel. And there's others as well, but these are kind of the main ones. Now, in the case of these passages, the Greek word here that I have in the title there occurs in all of these passages. In fact, in the Matthew 18 passage, it occurs in that parable that uh, Jesus is speaking of. It's in a parable, and it occurs four times, the same, same Greek word. Actually, uh, one of them is the noun form, but has the same idea. Anybody got Matthew 18? In fact, uh, if you got Matthew 18, who's got it? Connie. Connie. Why don't you start with verse 24? Uh, This isn't the verb form, but this is the noun form with the same idea, and it's translated identically in the English. Read 24 and then read 28. Okay, 24 says, And when he had begun to settle accounts, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. Okay. The one who owed, that's the essentially the noun form there, the one who had a debt, you might even say. But this is the parable relating to forgiveness mm-hmm. in Matthew chapter 18. And if you remember the, the context... This uh, servant was forgiven. He owed this huge debt, 10,000 talents, and and, uh, it was forgiven him by the master. And then another one comes and uh, owes the the first guy a small amount, and he's just uh, excessively oppressive to him and demands payment. So that's kind of the context. And the whole idea is the idea of forgiveness. But the word to owe is there, and it's in a financial context as far as an illustration in a parable. So read 28. But that servant went out and found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And he laid hands on him and took him by the throat saying, pay me what you owe. Okay, so there it is. Two times there. Pay me what you owe. He owed him. And then verse 30, why don't you read verse 30 as well? Because it occurs again. 1830 says, and he would not, but went and threw him into prison till he should pay the debt. Okay. So the debt there uh, is what was owed, essentially the verbal form there. And then it occurs again in 34. We won't read it. So it does have this financial idea. And there's some other verses as well, some passages in Luke and Philemon. Remember Philemon? Paul encourages the uh, Philemon, if he has wronged you, Onesimus, that is, if he has wronged you in any other way or owes you anything, charge that to my account. So it can be used in a financial sense, but it's actually used far more often in a more broad and a more general sense. One example Somewhat parallel to the passage we're looking at is First uh, John four eleven. Who's got it? No one. You guys are quiet today. Okay, I'll read it. Beloved, some who's got thirteen? John thirteen. Anyone got it? First John four eleven. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also owe love to one another. Now I'm kind of emphasizing the owing part. Now it's translated, we ought, we also ought to love one another, but it's the same Greek word. So you could even translate it, if God so loved us, we also owe love 
to one another. The whole idea of an indebtedness. We're indebted to love one another. And I think that's kind of the focus of what we have in Romans 13, 8. And looks like Sharon or David. David, why don't you do... Uh, I've, got, I've got 13. Okay, why don't you do 13? Maybe Sharon can do Third John, Third John 8. Do I do uh, 13? 14. If I then, your Lord and Master, have washed your feet, ye also ought to wash another's feet. Okay, that same word, you're indebted to wash, or you ought to, and in fact, it's translated that with this idea, in other words, an obligation, something that is obliged or owed, and it's used... uh, almost as commonly in that sense as it is uh, owed as a debt in terms of a financial debt. So the washing of one another's feet, John 13, 14, 3 John verse 8. Sharon, you got it? Yes. Therefore, we ought to support such men so that we may be fellow workers with the truth. Okay. So New American Standard translates this word as something that is obligated or something that is something that should be something that ought to be almost in the sense of a debt so it's used in a non-financial way and in some cases even more in the sense of an obligation not so much a material or financial one and in a spiritual sense we find it in uh, the book of Romans in terms of Owing like a debt. Now, in this case, it's not the uh, verb form, but the noun form. Romans 1.14. I am, and this is Paul here, I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. This is in the introduction to the whole book, kind of laying out his ministry. And he views it as something that is owed. Now, it's not owed to them. But in the sense that God has granted to us so much, he has blessed us so abundantly and with with so much grace that it's like being under obligation or like having a debt. And there's the noun form there for you. And then we also have it in Romans 8.12. So then, brethren, we are under obligation not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh, but instead, and then the verse follows basically relating to uh, the Christian life or the spiritual walk. So it has this spiritual sense as well. And in Romans fifteen seventeen, which is an interesting passage, it seems to have both senses in the same passage, material and spiritual And the passage goes, yes, they were pleased to do so, and they are indebted to them. Now, in that context, he's talking about Gentiles and the noun form there, indebted to them. So there's a a debt for if the Gentiles have shared in their spiritual things, they are indebted to minister to them also in material things. So... We have an indebtedness in relationship to spiritual things uh, because of an indebtedness in terms of material things. So you kind of have the two ideas there, an an indebtedness or a a debt. And you have both the noun and the verb in that context as well. So that's the idea that we have in Romans 13.8. I think in the broadest sense, owe no man anything not specifically necessarily financially, but it would include that. But it would go beyond that in that in some ways we are under obligation in our relationship to God because God has so blessed us that uh, we can have a sense of indebtedness to, to one another or even people in general, the unbeliever even, in terms of sharing the gospel with them. Like Paul says in that Romans one fourteen passage, he's under obligation to both Greek and, what did he say, barbarian or Gentile. So that's the way I take the passage at the beginning there. And specifically, 
he talks about a debt that could never be paid. In other words, you, you, you could never exhaust loving one another. And uh, the little phrase, one another, in the English, in most contexts, it refers to fellow believers. This one may, may be an exception. Does anyone from the context, can anyone give me a reason why he, it's not limited? I've already mentioned the broad context, but do you see anything in the near context here that might broaden the one another? Isn't the, isn't the context um, neighbor, which really doesn't that include everybody? Yeah, absolutely. In fact, you got you hit it right on the head there. And I think Jesus is the one that defines neighbor. Now, in the first century, Jewish people thought of their neighbor as fellow Jews. But in the parable of the Good Samaritan and elsewhere, Jesus seems to broaden it to whoever you encounter, including a Samaritan, which was unheard of within Jewish thinking. And the passage, for he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. So the broader context really relating to society and then the more near context, the usage of the word neighbor broadens who this love is to be expressed and in fact, who we have almost, uh, from our perspective, we can think of it as a debt. We owe it. Uh, not that we could ever pay God back. That's not the idea. But the idea that uh, we can be so grateful and so appreciative of what God has bestowed upon us in terms of grace, that that almost compels us, you might say, almost in the sense of an obligation. So the one another, here's the Greek word, alelon, not all alone, but alelone, one another, generally... Can I interrupt one second here? In verse uh, 8, where it says neighbor, Yes. that in Greek is heteros, meaning other. So it's it's even broader than we think of and when we uh, think of neighbor. Absolutely. In fact, you're always one step ahead of me. Neighbor is heteros. Heteros. In fact, in Greek, there are two words that refer to something that is different. One of them is alos, related to alelon. And the other one is heteros. In other words, different in nature, you might say, or different in kind, different in... Uh, types, exactly what uh, Sharon is, is sharing. In other words, other than or different from uh, fellow believers in terms of spiritual nature, the unbeliever doesn't even have a new nature at all. So it's not even the common word for neighbor, but it's this heteros, this other. Very good, Sharon. So the other, Jeff. Uh, yeah, the, the the difference between alos and heteros would be uh, oranges and uh, orange and orange versus orange and apples. Uh, heteros would be similar but different in the sense that you're comparing oranges and apples. Exactly. Very good. Good illustration. So the context, I take it. Who are we to love? The context is of society, and because of the different words here. I think this is one of the exceptions where alelon, which usually one another, usually of believers, probably has a broader sense in this particular context. And remember, words have meaning. They're not, you don't want to straitjacket words, or in this case, the translation of a phrase, in a phrase. Uh, you need to look at the context to find out how is this word used in this particular context. And this may be the only exception where alelon is probably broader than just fellow believers. And the verse also talks about fulfillment. So this is an important word in this context. Plerao is the Greek word there. We have the verb in verse 8, and the reason I highlight that is because we're going to have the noun in verse 10. We'll get to there in a moment. And the idea here, this is important, the 
commentators kind of debate how is this word used in this context? What does it mean to be fulfilled? And the, the only reason I bring it out is commonly, when you, again, when you see a word, you don't want to straightjacket that word. And in this case, when it says fulfillment, a lot of times people automatically think there's a prophecy involved, and this is a fulfillment of a prophecy. In other words, how a prophecy is fulfilled. And this word is used in a much broader sense outside of uh, prophetic predictions, you might say. And here's just one example where it's used in the sense of accomplishing an intent. And I think that's the, the, the idea here. So when you are loving, and this will be developed as we move through the passage, as you love others, you are accomplishing what all of the Old Testament law intended. And I think that's the way to think of it. So you don't have to live a legalistic Christian life and check all of the boxes. In other words, am I doing such and such? Am I doing this? Am I keeping this commandment? What about this one? If our focus in terms of relating to one another, is that of love, that will essentially accomplish all that all of the commandments intended. Now, this will be brought out as we go further, further in. So we have the summation of love, and this is what he's going to bring out in verse 9. So that's the scope of love. For this, referring back to this fulfillment, to this intent of uh, the law being fulfilled by by love. Now he lists several commandments here. And these come, you'll, you'll notice the Ten Commandments. What do the first four emphasize? Or what is the focus of the first four? Loving God. Loving Thanks. God. That's a, way, a good way of putting it, in fact. I was looking for at least relationship to God, but more specifically, I think that's accurate. In fact, that's what Jesus sums up, as we'll see later. Uh, if you love God with all of your heart, mind, and soul, you'll fulfill the law. And if you love your neighbor as yourself, that's the fulfillment. So there are two parts to the Ten Commandments. This part, the second part, now he doesn't give all of this second part, but he gives us, what is it, four of them? four out of the, the six, and uh, he's going to make the comment at the end. This is a summation of the, the, the Ten Commandments and any other, as you see it in the middle of the verse. So for this, beginning with the first one, you shall not commit adultery. Now, if you're loving your, your neighbors, your, the people that you associate with, then this is going to be the farthest thing from your mind because this is the opposite of love, violating a marriage relationship. Unless you think the extreme case, Jesus also includes in the Sermon on the Mount where adultery comes from. It comes from the heart attitude. So Jesus kind of equates adultery, the physical experience, with the inward uh, desiring or the inward uh, lusting is one of the ways that uh, we could put it. So you shall not commit adultery in all of its senses because it's basically the opposite of, of loving. So we have the commandments. The seventh one, dealing with adultery, protects the family. So in the Old Testament, the commandment against adultery protected the family and specifically marriage. In fact, there's another one that also protects the broader broader family. I should have put marriage there because that's more specific in terms of the seventh commandment. Then you shall not murder. And again, Jesus broadens it and goes to the origin of murder. Where does murder begin? It begins in the heart and it begins with anger. So he equates in the Sermon on the Mount, murder and anger going to the roots so the Ten Commandments deal with the broader root causes and then lists the outworking of that anger resulting in murder. And that one is the Sixth Commandment. 
interestingly out of order here. Right. Nate, go ahead. Yeah, and that one also goes to the root of attacking God since man is the image bearer of God. Yeah, very good. Yeah, it has a much broader application, you might say, than just simply the final and outward end product. So the Ten Commandments protect life in general, and like Nate says, goes all the way back to protecting the image bearers of of God, so it's an attack on God as well. So that's the Sixth Commandment. Now, why are they out of order? I don't think we know for sure, other than there are some Septuagint versions that have the same order, and it's possible that Jesus is actually uh, quoting from, uh, or Paul here is quoting from a Ten Commandment version from the, the Septuagint. But that's not the only one, that's not the only place where it's out of order, if you will, if you want to call it that. But uh, we find it in other places as well, where the, the commandments are uh, not in the order that we find them in our, our Bibles or the translations that we utilize. For example, let me see, Luke 18.20 has the same order that we have here. James 2.11 has adultery before murder in uh, his passage as well. So I'll let you think more on that. You shall not steal. Uh, That's the Eighth Commandment. So we have, going back to a little bit of the order here, you have the Seventh and now the Eighth, and the Sixth is out of order, if you want to think of it that way. Uh, So stealing protects property. So the Ten Commandments uh, deal with possessions, property, and uh, this one doesn't have an analogous reference in the in the Sermon on the Mount, but you might broaden it in terms of the whole idea of private property seems to be assumed in the Old Testament, and there's lots of passage that supports the idea of private property and ownership. This there aren't direct comments in terms of uh, socialism, which oftentimes leads to lack of the the uh, the right to private property. It assumes this right throughout Scripture. Connie, right. you have a comment. Well, my version also includes bearing false witness. Even though it says in the notes that some manuscripts don't include that, the next one then would be lying or false witness. Okay, so there are some manuscripts that include it, and the the reason for that is obvious. Somebody just had the Ten Commandments memorized, and they just copied it. Good point, Connie. Good insight. You shall not covet. Now, this is the one that goes to the heart directly in the Ten Commandments is the idea of desiring, and it uh, it is broader than simply property. It could be the whole idea of coveting somebody's position, somebody's power, somebody whatever. So it has that broader sense. And this is the one that Paul kind of emphasizes in uh, the earlier chapters of Romans that convicted him of his sinfulness, where the Ten Commandments has a very broad application, not just the end product of murder, stealing, adultery, lying, etc. So so he uh, kind of lists here as some examples for, and all of these come out of the second half of the Ten Commandments that pertain to the relationship between one another or between relationships between other people. The first half relates to our relationship to God. The second half or second part relates to our relationships to one another. And lest he miss one or lest somebody say, well, what about the one dealing with lying, etc.? And he says, and if there is any other, well, coveting, tenth to tenth. So he leaves off the ninth. 
If there is any other commandment, it is summed up. In other words, you don't have to know all 600 and how many? 13 commandments of the Old Testament. Somebody has counted them. Or you don't have to check off all of the boxes. If you simply concentrate on loving one another, they are summed up. So if there's any other, in other words, if you go down all of the lists that you can come up with and just read all of the Pentateuch and come come down to all of the commands that you find there or any other, even in the New Testament, it is summed up in this saying and the whole idea summed up. Got your Greek word there. You might even think of it as recapitulating the entire Old Testament, the entire law or as it's translated here, to sum up. And what is it summed up in? In this saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And then you have neighbor again. Uh, The idea of broader than simply brothers and sisters in Christ. And in the New Testament context, broader than simply fellow Jewish, Jewish people. So you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And this is pretty common. Now, I think this passage also is distorted in our culture. And it's used even by secularists. And I think they're the ones that are distorting it more probably than within the church. But, you know, oftentimes the culture affects the church more than the church affects the culture. So you see this idea within the body of Christ as well. The concept that you can't love others until you love yourself. I don't think that's the view of the first century or even the view of the the verse itself. I think the whole idea is it's, it's normal and natural to love yourself. In other words, you, you take care of yourself. You, you know, you get up, you comb your hair, you take, you eat your breakfast, you uh, get your rest, uh, you, you know, you buy the clothes that you need, you meet all of your needs almost by nature, almost instinctively. And I think that's more the idea. I don't think it pertains to the whole idea of self-image. And I think some people have taken it too far in that area. Sharon, you've got a comment. Well, basically what I was going to say, that that's just our nature. And we tend to take care of we tend to love ourselves, <laughs> yeah. no matter what. That's that's part of our sin nature. That's, yeah, that's part of who we are. That's and and it's almost instinctive. In other words, we have a reflex. If we're cold, we try to figure out a way to find warmth. If uh, we're hungry, we we look for food. We 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 meet our needs. We take care of ourselves, and I think that's the thrust. And. Just as we are instinctive, let's say, in taking care of all of those needs that we have as believers in doing what God would desire, not in a legalistic way, but almost in an instinctive from the new nature, the power of the Holy Spirit, the instinct of the Holy Spirit and the instinct of our new nature is to think in terms of what does that person need? Do they need warmth? Do they need food? Do they need whatever? And even beyond the material needs, as believers, uh, do they need encouragement? Do they need emotional support? Do they need all of the things that uh, people just naturally need? Uh, What ministry can I be to them, whether material and or emotional or spiritual? So, if that is our focus, that that is the principle. Now, I also liked what an, a commentator had to say. He, he made the distinction of the law, trying to obey the law. And when you have laws, you, you have all of the ins and the outs and, you know, the exceptions and all of the boxes to check. But when you have a principle... It kind of covers more broadly, and this we need to view this as more of a kind of a principle, a life principle, and I think that's the thrust of the passage. And if we can focus on the principle, then we cover, and we and all of the boxes get checked, and we don't have to worry about 
well, did I miss something? Did I, am I not doing this? That's kind of legalism. And that's a whole area that the Bible, I think, encourages us against. So the basic principle is just thinking outside of ourselves. What are the needs of others and how can I meet them? And that's how we essentially love our neighbors as ourselves. So, first six of the Ten Commandments. Somebody look up uh, Matthew 22. We've already kind of summarized this. And then the second half of the Ten Commandments, six through ten, which Paul gives us four of them. And whoever looked up Matthew 22, who's got it? This is the well-known passage. And what Paul is saying, basically, if you focus on what Jesus is teaching, Matthew 22, 37 through 40, will essentially fulfill Mike or Katie, probably Katie. Katie likes to read. I do. I'm a reader. All right. Matthew 22, 37, 38. First of all. And he said to him. By the way, before you read it, the context is here's a legalist. That comes to the Lord and says, hey, I've checked all the boxes. I've checked all the boxes. I, you know, what am I lacking? And go ahead and read 22, 37. And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. Okay. And essentially that summarizes the first Four of the Ten Commandments, as well as others that encourage us along the lines of our relationship to God. Keep reading 39 and 40. Okay. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. Okay. And essentially, that's what Paul is saying in Romans 13 as well. That's the summation, and Paul uses the word fulfillment. So, hey, Ray. Go ahead, Steve. So um, in the first couple of chapters of Matthew, or maybe third or fourth, talks about uh, Jesus said, I, I I'm, didn't come, I can't quote it exactly, I didn't come to change the law, I came to kind of, change it or replace it. He came to fulfill it. Right. Same word, by the way. And that really really jumps out at me. That that really strikes me as he makes things whole. He puts puts it all in perspective exactly. Yeah. Perfectly. Right. And he's fulfilling it in this sense as well. In fact, he fulfilled it in every way. Jesus fulfilled the law in all of the the multifaceted ways that the word fulfillment can be used. He fulfilled it in the sense that there's prophecies concerning the coming of the Messiah, and he fulfilled those prophecies. In other words, he is the fulfillment of prophetic literature, prophetic writing. He also fulfilled it in the sense of giving the full meaning of the Old Testament. And some of the passages that I was referring to in the Sermon on the Mount, the word fulfillment is, I think, in that context. In fact, that statement is in that context of the Sermon on the Mount. And in that immediate context, I think that's part of what he's referring to, fulfilling in that he's bringing out the full meaning of essentially the Old Testament. And He also fulfilled the law in that he checked off all of the boxes. He did everything that the law requires. And you could say that he's the only one that could and ever did because of being sinless, checked off all of the boxes of the Old Testament. So in the the sense of performing everything that the law required, Jesus fulfilled it. So that's a good good passage in that same word playroho. Playroho, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Same word. So we have the scope of love, verse eight, the summation of love, summate summating is that a word? Summarizing all of the Old Testament. 
Verse 10, stick with Esses, the significance of love. Love does no wrong to the neighbor. So you can look at it from the negative perspective. That's the prohibitions of the law. Uh, the law is designed to prevent harm to one another, protecting property, protecting life, protecting marriage, protecting family, protecting uh, society in terms of wrongs and lies. Uh, love does no wrong to the neighbor. And there we have, again, a uh, reference to the neighbor. So we have unconditional love. And I think Denise asked if we could describe a little bit of that. And I'll let you look these up on your own. What does this love look like? Well, the, the word itself, agape, is in the context. So it's that unconditional love. We've looked at these before. These are kind of the, the major passages relating to what does this love look like? It's unconditional in that uh, it does not depend on the object being loved. The person being loved can be the most despicable, most hateful, most antagonistic. And uh, Jesus in that John 13 giving us how we should be characterized as believers. We should love as he loved. And in that context, that's where we have the foot washing and where we also have kind of Jesus wrapping up his ministry in terms of loving not only the disciples, but the way he loved throughout his ministry. So it's an unconditional love that includes in the Sermon on the Mount, even enemies, love your enemies. That's from Jesus himself. That's unconditional. Those that are even persecuting and antagonistic to us. It's a sacrificial love. Christ died on the cross. I think that's emphasized in Ephesians 5.2, the sacrificial aspect of it. It's something that we have to pursue getting outside of ourselves. We were talking about our instinct is to take care of ourselves, but we need to go beyond that and pursue it. And Paul says, pursue love in the context of the Corinthians were pursuing spiritual gifts. He encourages them to pursue love after the chapter 13, which is the focal point of the Bible on love. It should be growing. Paul describes it as love that abounds, that grows. So it's something that is not static. It grows as we grow as believers. It is a fervent love that includes emotions, but does not necessarily depend on them because it's unconditional. So it's a fervent and genuine love in that 1 Peter 1.22. And it's a comprehensive love. In other words, it includes many facets and many aspects of it. 1 Corinthians 16.14. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. And there we have, again, the translation of the word fulfillment. And we've seen it kind of throughout with different words. We saw one that was a different word in terms of summation. Same word for love, though. And kind of wrapping it all up, this is what he's talking about in verses 8 through 10. And in verse 8, we have the verb form, plerao. And then uh, in uh, 13.10, we have the noun form, pleroma, something filling up or filling to fullness, or you might think of love as the condensation of the, the bigger, the bigger body of laws and requirements. If we focus simply on loving, we essentially fulfill the intent. We accomplish the intent of what God intends in the Old Testament. So this is the Christian life rather than a legalistic kind of approach to Christianity. And we could summarize all of this walking in the Spirit. If we just focus on walking in the Spirit, God will produce that love through us, will alert us to the needs of those around us. Walking in the Spirit will get us to be able to get outside of ourselves. And simply walking in the Spirit will also produce all that God intends by the law. 
fulfills the law. So that's verse verses 8 through 10. Any further comments? Good comments, by the way. Nate? Yeah, right. Um, so I was going to say, and this may be touching on what Denise was getting at, uh, one of the other ways that this is kind of uh, distorted in our culture is that it seems to be defined or it wants to, people want to define it in a way that's not biblical or scriptural and it's just whatever makes me happy or whatever makes me feel good. And so love has to be defined within the biblical framework and it has to be interpreted like whatever constitutes love. You can't just make up what you think that might be. It has to be uh, within the, the understanding of the scriptures. Yeah, very good. Very good. All right. Well, let's spend some time in prayer. Feel free to pray. And when it looks like we're done, I'll shut us down. Yeah, we love you, Heavenly Father, and we thank you for dying for our sins, Lord Jesus. We want to pray for uh, Ray and his trip to the Ukraine. We just ask that it would be a successful trip, that it would go off, and that uh, the objectives of it would be met, uh, furtherance of the kingdom of God in the Ukraine, and the, and the uh, uh, camaraderie with the missionaries over there in the Ukraine, one of which I got to hear when Jamie tipped me off to the conference. Kind of cool. Uh, we also pray, Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus, for missionaries everywhere. For the one that we talk with occasionally in uh, Hong Kong, that she's doing fine. That um, we pray for all the girls, and we pray for Heavenly Father, the babies, Lord God, in the holy name of Jesus. We pray they'll all get placed in wonderful homes. We ask in the holy name of Jesus, Heavenly Father, for uh, the Titanic struggle. Uh, against uh, of good versus evil in China and all the churches that have to have pictures of Mao. And we pray, Heavenly Father, that you would take this as an affront and get rid of that horrible system over there. We pray for a, a, a missionary I just heard of yesterday with a fictive name of Sharon, who's uh, ministering to the the Uyghurs in a, a ministry, a nursing ministry over there. And we just ask that that would be successful, Heavenly Father. We pray for all those people, not of our same faith. Um, we pray for her mission to them, and we pray for, the, as uh, fellow citizens of the world, that they would be spared the horrible indignities and monstrosities that are conducted on them by the satanic Chinese Communist Party. We ask that in the holy name of Jesus, also, Heavenly Father. And dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this wonderful class and the things we learned today. In Jesus' name. Mm-hmm.